Hello there and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. So today we're going to look at the the very first uh, Greek philosophers who are known as the Ionian philosophers. Uh, before I go there, actually, I should mention um, the bigger grouping of the first chunk of ancient history would be the pre-Socratics. So that's referring to Socrates, kind of like B.C., A.D., uh, before Christ, Anno Deneo, however the Latin goes, um, before Jesus, after Jesus, you know, Jesus is kind of the important part of history. You have before and after. In history, you have Socrates and people that were before him and people that are after him. So the pre-Socratics, uh, let's, let's do some uh, kind of general comments about the pre-Socratics, and then we'll get into... Uh, the categories of the pre-Socratics, and there's basically three categories of them. Uh, there's the Ionians, then there's the Pythagoreans, and then uh, well, then the next group is actually harder to to um, synthesize, but there's Heraclides and Parmenides that are kind of the two poles of the next thing, and then there's the Atomists and the Sophists. Anyways, we'll get to those when we get to them. But the first people we'll talk about is the, um, sorry, what I want to say about all this group of people is that um, there's not nearly as as much known about them as we would like. Uh, When we get to Plato, um, surprisingly, amazingly, even though he's, uh, what is it, 2300 years ago, we have every single one of his works. Um, And Aristotle, we have most of his works. But people before Socrates, Socrates, we have none of his works, uh, if he wrote anything. And the pre-Socratics, we have very, very little of their works. Um, insert a question here, why is this? I don't know why this is. Um, but Plato founded a school uh, called the Academy, which existed for a long time. So I would imagine that uh, having an academy, a brick-and-mortar place, um, they probably kept a library, they probably copied his works, that probably had a big influence on uh, preserving his thought and his works, and, and Aristotle did the same. Um, there could have just been other social factors as well, I don't know. Uh, so that would be a great question to find to figure out for later on. Uh, but that's just something to be aware of going in, is that most of the access we have to the pre-Socratics is actually through Aristotle and Plato as they are, um, and it'll be mostly refuting them, sometimes building off their ideas. So they'll have them in conversation with, literally in conversation sometimes, if we're talking about Plato, um, he'll he'll imagine that this person is still alive and is having a conversation with Socrates, and he'll use that conversation to explain his own ideas. Um, and so we know of them kind of through these secondhand sources. All right, so that being said about the great, the the large um, context of the pre-Socratics, let's zoom in on uh, the Ionian philosophers. This is, um, where is Ionia? Let's figure out where that is. Um, So I'm really, really bad at geography, so I looked this up, and um, you you might even know where Ionia is. I don't, or I didn't before I looked it up. So if you can think of the Mediterranean Sea, most of you guys know that the Holy Land, Palestine, Israel is, you know, on the far east of the Mediterranean Sea. And most of you know where Italy is just because it looks like a boot. Uh, and you can kind of think how how that looks and it looks like it's kicking Crete across the Mediterranean Sea there. Um, if you move east from Italy, 
you'll get over to a larger kind of clumpy uh, peninsula and that is Greece and it's got it's kind of got um, pieces of it jutting out into the sea and little islands around it and stuff if you keep going east from that you get to a little sea and then you get to mainland um, Asia Minor and that little sea uh, between the peninsula of Greece and the mainland is called the Aegean Sea A-E-G-E-A-N uh, and that coastline is where uh, Ionia is and where the village or the city of uh, Miletus was and that's where um, it all began so let me read you a quote here um, Copleston says the splendid achievement of Greek thought was cradled in Ionia and if Ionia was the cradle of Greek philosophy Miletus was the cradle of Ionian philosophy because that is where um, Thales came from and so before we talk about uh, Thales and what he discovered let's talk about why um, why the uh, what the Ionian philosophers were doing and why that was so different um, from how it was before. So Copleston goes into a lot of detail in his book about the Ionians just because it's it's really fascinating that that's where it began. Um, and he talks about how there was a lot of chaos and a lot of um, kind of the previous society was kind of crumbling and falling apart and making way for the Greek society that was about to come into power. Um, but in Ionia there was a measure of peace and stability and they were able to hold on to some of the good that was demonstrated in um, Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, I'm not sure if you would know what that is but that's still a classic today that, that uh, we often read in high school. Um, the Homer, um, so the world and, and the thought system demonstrated by, by Homer they still had contact to that. Um, there was kind of a collapse of society, but in Ionia they were still able to, with one hand, reach back to um, better times, and another, with the other hand, they were they were looking forward. They were reaching forward. Now, Copleston, uh, one of the reasons that he's so good, and you read this and you're like, this guy is amazing, and then there's like ten volumes of this, and you're like, how do you master all this information? Um, so not only is he giving information, but he's also talking about other people that have written and at times interacts with or refutes their works. And one thing that he mentions is some people have put forth the idea that um, the first philosophers of Greece were influenced by Babylon and Egypt, that they got their astrology from Babylon and their math from Egypt. Um, and he says that's true to some extent, that they did get some math from Egypt and they did get some astrology from Babylon but with a big difference the big thing that ha that was started happening in Ionia was that they made a division between science so to speak as such as it was at the beginning and religion uh, so they weren't asking how did the gods do this uh, they weren't looking at the stars thinking of them as gods that were marching around uh, that were you know affecting the earth in some spiritual way uh, they started asking how things were in and of themselves without a spiritual component um, and so Copleston says yes sure the Egyptians used some mass just to mark out their fields and figure out you know how to how to handle the floodplains of the Nile but um, the Ionians started using math to um, 
quantify and figure out the world around them and started seeing the world in mathematical terms, which, you know, that's, we're used to that because that's Western society. We think about everything as being, you can explain it in mathematical terms. There's this many molecules in that uh, you are this many inches tall and, and you weigh this many pounds. Everything can be quantified by numbers. And they started thinking mathematically in that sense. And yes, they took astrology from Babylon as far as the measurements in, of the stars and things like that, but they started turning in astrology into astronomy, um, studying the stars as fixed points and figuring out how to navigate. One of their big innovations was figuring out how to navigate on the sea using the stars, uh, realizing that yes, they move, but certain stars don't. And so for this reason, Cobbleston says, the Greeks then stand as the uncontested original thinkers and scientists of Europe. They were the first people that really did science, so to speak. And for them, the big, the big difference that Cobbleston sees is they were able to separate the scientific world, the world as it is, from the religious world, from just saying that a god did it. Now, I know if you're listening to this, you're probably a Christian, you're probably interested in apologetics, and right away you're hearing atheists saying, aha, I told you so, I told you so. It all started when uh, people turned away from the gods to just look at science. And I'm going to pick up that thought towards the end of this podcast because that is an interesting discussion, but I don't want to get sidetracked right now with our own problems. Let's just focus on, on the Greek thinkers and what they actually accomplished. Now, I'll just add another footnote here. Um... Copelson says it's it's possible that they had some influence from Babylon and, and Egypt, uh, but they really were pretty isolated in themselves, and so most of the things they came up with were pretty original. Um, and he strikes out, uh, as does uh, Nash, um, the rumor or the idea that, that we've heard often that uh, they were influenced by Judaism. He says there's no possible way and, and there's no proof. Uh, both Copelson and Nash say there's no, there's no evidence or proof that either the pre-Socratics or Plato himself were influenced by Judaism, by Moses, by the Old Testament. Likely these ideas came up, you know, separately and then eventually, um, you know, met one another. Um, this is the idea that Plato was influenced by, uh, this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it is important for uh, approaching this this material, um, which is why both Nash and Copplestone mention it. Um, Christianity comes to lean very heavily on Greek thought uh, in the early church and thereafter. And so some of the early church fathers said, well, you know, Plato borrowed from Moses, therefore Plato is okay to use. Um, and uh, historians have looked for a link and they simply have said there's no evidence that that happened. So it's more, it's safer just to say that that's likely not true. Um, but all truth is God's truth. And so likely... Plato discovered truth because it's true. And it's not bad to say, well, he discovered something that's true. We can use it in uh, in our theology and our understanding of God as well. So more generalities we can say about the Ionians is that they were very interested in change. Seasons, age, decay, things change around them. But at the same time, they felt like there's, there must be something permanent that doesn't change. And so this became kind of this quest to find the one thing that doesn't change became the quest of the early philosophers and quote-unquote scientists. Uh, Copplestone uses the word Erstoff, which is German for primary matter or the one, to 
express this idea of the unchanging thing, the one organizing principle for everything. And this is what they were out looking for. Now, as I already alluded to, they didn't look for answers to their gods. They looked to the natural world. They were, they were trying to figure out in the world, naturally speaking, scientifically speaking, so to speak, we could say that probably, what is that one thing that organizes the world? Now, they were materialists, and Copplestone uh, does a lot of work to explain exactly what he means by calling them materialists. Um, now, materialist that we would talk about is basically a synonym for atheism. A materialist that believes that God doesn't exist, spirits don't exist, angels don't exist, demons don't exist. And in our day, we have this huge battle going on between Christianity and atheism, or other religions and atheism. Um, but it would be a mistake, Copleston rightly says, to identify these early thinkers as naturalists in our way of thinking, because we have a well-developed concept of the natural world and the supernatural world. And atheist naturalists today would say, no, the this, this supernatural world does not exist. Whereas these first thinkers just simply hadn't imagined this other world yet. Um, they, it just didn't enter into their thinking. In fact, um, Copleston says somewhere later on in the book, and I don't have the quote, but uh, that even polytheism in the way that the Greeks had thought of it, about it, in a way, is naturalism. Because the gods are naturalistic, uh, they're made in, in human terms, um, they're very much tied up with the natural world, <clears throat> in, a, in a sense, depending on how you look at it. Um, these, the way that they thought of the Greek gods originally, this is before Plato, before Aristotle, before Zeus started being associated with the cosmic principle or the, um, the one, the Erstoff. Um, the earlier myths, especially as represented in Homer's um, works, uh, the Odyssey and the Iliad, um, were almost a naturalistic telling of, of how the gods interacted. Yes, we can't see them, but you know they live over there on Mount Olympus, and, and they come down and they do their thing, and then they go back. Uh, they have magical powers, sure, but they're basically you know part of this world. Um, and so these people started. Um, well, they didn't. They they didn't seem to believe in these gods, um, but it wasn't a big shift because already. Nobody was really thinking of something bigger and beyond the world that they could see. So to recap, they're materialists, but not in the sense of rejecting the spiritual world. They're materialists in the sense of they hadn't conceived of it yet. And what we're actually going to find is that um, the pre-Socratics are kind of going to end up um, hitting a dead end until Socrates and Plato and Aristotle introduce the idea of the spiritual world or metaphysics or an unseen world, the world of the forms, or something like that to help explain the visible world. Um, but at this point all we can say is that they're naturalistic because they hadn't conceived of a spiritual world yet. Okay, there's just two miscellaneous points uh, to mention here and then we'll get right into Thales. Um, so they um, mixed their sciences together more correctly they hadn't divided them yet. Um, they did math, they did chemistry, they did astronomy, they did, you know, examinations, well, they did botany, they did all sorts of things. Uh, they were just kind of traveling wise men, um, 
trying to figure out the world as it went. Uh, and so when we talk about philosophy at this point, it's really the beginnings of science. And even as we get into Aristotle and Plato, um, I mean, Aristotle is the, the father of modern science, really. Um, and so there isn't this division between philosophy and science that we have today. Uh, and so just be aware of that. Also, um, a lot of these early guys were actually statesmen. Uh, they were involved in politics. Some of them were political leaders of one form or another. And so um, when you get up to Socrates and Plato, they were very much off, you know, doing philosophy. Uh, but these early guys uh, were more involved in politics. Okay, so then we get to Thales. Gordon Clark says that Greek philosophy began on May 28, 585 BC at 613 in the evening. Now, how in the world could he get to a date so precise um, over 2,500 years ago? His reasoning is that, um, and he, he admits uh, just after making this comment that he's being a little bit facetious, um, but it's a great way to start a his history textbook to be so facetiously precise. Um, this was an eclipse that was accurately predicted according to tradition, according to um, pot potentially legend. Uh, it was predicted by one Thales of uh, Ionia. And uh, this Thales uh, developed a reputation in part from predicting this eclipse and other things that he apparently did uh, as being a wise man, as being somebody that knew, um, uh, as being a wise man, I guess. Um, very little is known about him. He's kind of this this ancient, interesting figure um, that uh, started something new, and therefore, you know, rumors and stories and legends were developed about him. But the, the modern historian is going to kind of tend to look pretty skeptically on a lot of those stories. Um, so there's two famous stories about Thales. Well, three, I guess. The one is that he predicted the eclipse. That's, that ended an important battle, and it was, you know, obviously eclipses were a big deal back in the day. Another kind of humorous anecdote is that uh, one day he was out stargazing, trying to figure out the stars and how they connected and, and, and just observing nature, and he fell into an open pit, or open, open well, while staring at the stars. Another anecdote re re accounted by Aristotle is that um, one year he noticed the rainfall, he noticed the seasons and different things and he predicted that there's going to be a bumper crop of, heart, of figs this year and so he went out and invested in fig trees and he bought a bunch of fig trees and then he made a lot of money and Aristotle uses this anecdote to say that philosophers could make money if they wanted to uh, but they choose to um, use their intellect for other means so uh, his main contribution to philosophy is that he began the search for the one, the, the organizing principle in the world. What, what makes everything changes, but what is that one thing that is stable, that is um, unifies it all? And again, he wasn't looking to some sort of a divine answer. He was looking to something scientific, something within the world that explains the world. And his explanation was water. Aristotle conjectures that perhaps he noticed that when seeds get wet, they, they sprout, they have life that bodies have water in them, we need water to, to live, and um, we don't know exactly why he thought water was the organizing principle of the world. Um, and perhaps he got this also from myths 
dating before him. Uh, there's a lot of ancient creation myths that say, you know, everything was created out of water. Uh, even in the Bible, you see some some poetic references uh, about things like that. Um, so it's not significant so much for his answer that everything is water, um, but it's more significant for the fact that he was looking for. Um, he, he, he's more significant for the questions he asked than for the answer that he gave. Um, he was the first one to really ask the question, what is the one thing that explains uh, how everything fits together? He also said at one point that all things are full of gods, and he used this to explain magnetism. And it's very unclear what he meant by this, but it's been proposed that he and mo many of the pre-Socratics believed in hylozoism. Uh, hylo, well, I know what zoism means. I'm not sure what hylo means. Uh, but this, this is the idea that matter is alive. So when he looked at a magnet and how it's able to attract metal, he said, well, there's gods in it or it's alive or somehow stuff is living and that explains how um, water evaporates and, and how you know things burn and, and other things like that happen. So again, not you look at that and you say, well, that's not, it's not true. <laughs> it's not helpful, but he's starting to ask the right questions. So then he has a young associate, Anaximander, who's younger than Thales and actually dies before Thales does. Um, and he was more scientific than Thales. He made a map, uh, perhaps one of the first people to make a map. Um, and he was a politician. He led a colony. Um, but he said, no, the Erstoff, the, the fundamental thing can't be water because water is one of the things that's organized by... Um, or it's part of the change and the, the, the ebb and flow of, of life. So he said, and Anaximander uh, anexam, is a really interesting guy because he had some really, some ideas that were quite a bit ahead of his time. Um, he, he believed that the fundamental principle must be something beyond um, the water, the fire, the earth, the air, the wind, it must be something that we can't see that's organizing everything, which is a really interesting concept. It's not that far from the truth in a way. Um, he talked about how the elements such as cold and heat, wet and dry, um, would create injustice against each other, and somehow this interaction would create the change. Um, little bit confusing how he explained that. I don't quite understand it, but somehow he was taking the concept of justice and injustice from the natural from politics and applying that to the natural world, which makes sense when you think about that the natural world is alive to him. Uh, what's interesting is that he, or more interesting stuff from an examiner, is that he proposed a plurality of worlds coexisting, and I might not have this right, but what I think I understand from his, from reading uh, Copplestone on him, is that he imagined this sort of a vortex where matter was kind of spinning around. And spinning off from that are a huge number of worlds. Uh, and we live in one of these worlds. And the world is not spherical. It's actually um, like a tube, like a cylinder. 
and it's in motion and the centrifugal force of this world spinning separates lighter and heavier objects so the fire and air and earth are separated from what we would call centrifugal force as this world spins off so it's actually when you think about it i mean he's it's kind of backwards a little bit and gravity you know it is a force that he hadn't conceived of yet um, but you can see they're starting to come up with explanations that are more scientific um, and using things that they can see in the world they can observe centrifugal force if you spin something the water will will be pushed out to the edges and um, and this was the explanation he had for how the world worked how and he even kind of had an idea of a multiverse which uh, has come back into vogue these days uh, he proposed a primitive idea of evolution and he believed that humans came from animals so of course this gets a lot of atheists really excited um, but beyond that he actually died pretty young I mean he lived 610 to 546 so what's the math between that is that about 36 years um, which is too bad if he had lived longer he might have come up with other interesting things um, he proposed some mechanism of change between the elements this is something that um, Thales didn't do so he said maybe the um, the force of oh no he talked about justice and injustice as being a force that that changes elements from one element to another um, Anaximenes comes after and these guys are all contemporaries uh, Anaximenes lived from 585 to 528 um, Wow so he's actually he actually died oh, you know what I keep getting confused by the BCAD that's why I'm confused here yeah so Anaximander actually was born I need to pause this and figure this out. It's so confusing counting backwards. Yeah, Anaximander was actually born after Thales, but he did die, and he died after, but although he did still live a fairly short life. Anaximenes, so there's Anaximander and Anaximenes, very similar names. So the third guy on this list, um, on first reading, um, kind of looks like a retrogression because he says, you know what? maybe it is something we can see that is the fundamental stuff of the universe and so he goes to air Thales said water and Eximenes says air and so from our perspective we say well that's kind of a retrogression because the four elements that they had back then were basically earth air um, fire and water and so he's just picking another one of them um, as with Thales and Eximenes thought the world was flat so he's abandoning this interesting idea of an examiner that the earth is a vortex spinning off of a central vortex of of matter um, he thinks the earth is flat and it floats on the air like a leaf and um, but he advances again on this uh, mechanism of change so obviously if he says all things are air you look around and you say well we know what air is and there's hard things that are not air that do not have the properties of air so he proposes a, a mechanism for change which is uh, condensation and rarefication basically when air gets spread out more rarefied 
then it becomes air when it becomes condensed, compressed, pushed in on itself. Then it becomes water and eventually it becomes earth and, and rocks and, and metal and whatever else. So that is actually helpful uh, to think of one way that elements can pass from one thing to another is through rarefication and condensation. Um, uh, Copleston mentions that he had he explained a rainbow as when light hits a cloud that is too dense for it to pass through then it creates a rainbow kind of bouncing off the cloud I guess and he just puts a mention that that is it's just interesting to see how he's making a scientific observation instead of you know in Homer um, you know it would have been one of the gods that's doing I think it was a messenger from the gods uh, was what the rainbow was so he becomes known as he's the last of the Ionian uh, philosophers, those three guys, um, because uh, Miletus, their village, falls in 494. And he kind of becomes, um, the Ionian school becomes known as the, uh, by his name, the Anaximenes school. And so now we turn to the Pythagoreans, exciting folks that we still study when we learn math. So we will turn there next.